0: ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Fresh Frozen Southerner podcast. My name is Jay. I hope all is well. All right, guys, today we are going to wrap up Thomas Paine's Common Sense. Uh, there's not a whole lot of information I want to go over in the final section of this book. Uh, still some good points in there, but in this section, uh, it's titled The Presentability Ability of America with Some Miscellaneous Reflections. Now, what he's dealing with in this chapter, there's actually sort of two main parts. Uh, the first is the fact that America did not have a line of credit with the other nations in this country, and we were going to need to go very deeply into debt if we were going to wage war against Britain. You know, We did not have a standing navy. I, I doubt that England would have allowed us to build warships, but mostly England had protected us for the 200-odd years that, that we had been a colony of England. There was actually shipyards in New England. Uh, American shipwrights had actually built men-of-war ships, not for England. I think that they were sold to Belgium or Holland. But we had skilled craftsmen in this country that knew how to build ships. And we had all the timber and everything we would need. Uh, A lot of farms grew hemp so we could make plenty of rope. We had everything we needed to build a navy. Uh, We had never endeavored to do so, and it would cost a lot of money. But we certainly had the capability and the know-how to build a navy. Now, at the time, England's navy was considered supreme on the planet. So a lot of people they did not think there was any reason to build a navy because we would have to have a hundred years to get something that would match England's navy. Uh, But in this chapter, Thomas Paine lays out why he believes that. Britain's navy was not as big of a hurdle that a lot of people believed they were. Uh, but first things first, let me read to you the uh, paragraphs of this chapter, and this is where he's sort of laying out his final arguments for why America should break away from Britain. I have never met a man, either in England or America, who has not confessed his opinion that a separation between the countries would take place one time or another and there is no instance in which we have shown less judgment than endeavoring to describe what we call the ripeness or fitness of the continent for independence. As all men allow the measure, and vary only in their opinion of the time, let us, in order to remove mistakes, take a general survey of things and endeavor, if possible, to find out the very time. But we need not go far. The inquiry ceases at once, for the time hath found us. The general concurrence, the glorious union of all things, prove the fact. Now, I do want to touch on this particular thought just for a moment. I have heard my entire life people talking about America and how it was destined to be a free and independent country. A lot of people say that, well, God bless the USA. God has ordained that this country was going to be a free and independent country. Now, I am not very religious, so if you want to say that it was God or if it was fate, or if it was just one of those quirks of history where a lot of smaller things lined up and just at the perfect time and the perfect place. However you want to feel about it, there is a lot of things that really fail our way as far as the timing, uh, Britain's involvement in other parts of the world and couldn't devote their full attention to us. Mostly, you know, people really love to bash the founders, Attacking them as just these rich white slave owning men, that's really come into fashion. Uh, that's something that you never saw in the 80s when I was in grade school. And that's all you hear now. And I don't care what anybody says because all of these people, you know, they'll, if you push them on, oh, no, I love this country. I love it. But we need to make some changes. No, you hate this country. That's where all this is coming from. It's just like if if I'm telling you about somebody we both know. And you just absolutely do not like this guy. And I'm telling you, no, he's he's a good guy. You know, anytime I've asked him for anything, he's right there. He's happy to help. You know, his sister was in a car accident and was going to have to rehab for six months. He quit his job and moved to her city to help her out. You know, the guy's got a heart of gold. And you're saying, No, come on. He's an asshole. It nothing he does is good. It just it just he's he's a jerk. And I don't care what you say, anything good he does, he's just pretending, and he's just a jerk and I hate him. That is the mentality of these people that attack the founders. And no, they were not perfect because they're humans and all humans have flaws. But the slave owning thing, a lot of the founders were staunch abolitionists. Nobody ever talks about that fact. It just they're all lumped into the same like they would just you know they, the only time they stopped beating their servants is when they went out to beat the slaves. That's what the narrative that's getting pushed now is. And it's simply a way, to dismiss all the good that they did. Because that is one of the things that I've never really heard anyone talk about is how amazing it is that you had so many brilliant forward-thinking men all come together for one cause at the same time in history. The founders do not get enough credit on this. I mean you men like Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, these were some of the most brilliant men of their time and they were all within a few hundred miles of each other at the exact same time in history. That is a rare occurrence. And, you know, whether you're super religious and you believe that God had a hand in it or whether you just believe that everything is chaos and every once in a while objects will bump into each other and it doesn't mean anything, you have to acknowledge the fact that these were some of the most brilliant men in history, and it is incredibly coincidental that they were all in this one place at this one time. Thomas Paine believed this as well. Now, the reasons that he gave for the timing didn't really deal deal with the Founding Fathers. That would be kind of an unusual thing to feel in the moment. That's something that we can see with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, But Thomas Paine spoke mostly about, uh, number one, I'd mentioned the Navy, now, the British Navy at this time consisted of around 150 warships and about 100 support ships, which is a huge number of ships. But England could not devote all of its attention to us. At this time, England had colonies in India. They had colonies in Africa. All of these colonies had Navy ships assigned to patrol their waters and to take supplies. Also, England was in what Involved in one of his regular wars with France, a lot of their warships were going to that cause. And plus, you just had ships that were, you know, in dock for repairs or had been damaged in battle or storm. Not all of those ships would be able to be sent to America. So, Thomas Paine argued that we would be facing a much smaller volume of their warships, plus the fact that if we had our own warships, we would be building them right here. We would be manning them with people right here. We would be able to, there was just numerous ports that they would be able to stop in for supplies, for repairs, whereas England's warships, they would have to be outfitted and manned in England, sail 3,000 miles, engage in battle off the coast of our waters, and if they're damaged or if they needed to be resupplied, they would have to sail back to England, and I think at the time it took about a month to cross the ocean. We were not going to be dealing with the full strength of their navy. Thomas Paine argued that if we could build 25 ships, we would be able to fight off the British Navy, or at least the small portion that they would be able to send to do battle with the colonists. Thomas Paine also argued that our militia was more than enough to defend the colonies from the British land troops. Now again, England was involved in a very large-scale war with France at the time, so they were not able to send the full might of their army over to fight us, as evidenced by the fact that they were hiring Hessian mercenary units to come over. In fact, one of my ancestors was a Hessian mercenary. Uh, He was pressed into service and brought over to fight the colonies. Uh, He was captured at some point. He spent some time in a POW camp in the Shenandoah Valley. And after the war, he either decided to stay or I, I don't know why he stayed. I suspect the American government offered any British or Hessian soldiers that had been captured, they offered those soldiers. 40 acres of land and citizenry if they would renounce either their allegiance to England or Germany and take the oath of the American citizen and i feel like the prospect of actually owning land instead of working land that belonged to a principality to somebody in Germany is what prompted this individual to stay but i really don't know the story but our militia was more than enough to fight a defensive war and that's that's a big thing if you're fighting a defensive war it's much harder on the attacking enemies you know, the people that live there, they know the land, they know where to get supplies, they know where to get fresh water, they know their way through the countryside. There's just a lot of advantage to fighting a defensive war. And Thomas Paine believed that our militia was more than up to the task of repelling the Redcoats. Also, when you hear the founders talk about militia, they're not talking about what we think of as a militia. We're not talking about a bunch of good old boys that like to get together on a weekend and do, like, mock military training, which really has a negative connotation in in most people's minds. In this time, the militia meant army. It does not mean a bunch of people that just get together on their own. When you hear George Washington or any of these other generals talk about the militia, they're talking about their standing army. Which really puts a lot of the arguments of the gun control people in the perspective when they talk about the Second Amendment. They are they say, "Well, it says militia; it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean your average citizen. You're supposed to be the militia." Well, the militia is the army, and if you look at how that's written, there is a comma after the word militia in the Second Amendment. Now, this is not my point. Uh, actually, I saw uh, Penn and Teller did a short video, on it's on YouTube. If you'd like to watch it about why that comma is in that statement. They're arguing that you know these were all educated men. They took the rules of grammar very seriously. They would not have just added a miscellaneous comma. So if you read it as intended with that comma there, it says, as a militia, is being necessary, comma, the rights of the people to bear arms shall not be infringed. And if you read it, Taking that comment into consideration, the statement suddenly becomes, since we have to have a standing army, the rights of the citizens to bear arms shall not be infringed. And the reason it is worded like that is because these people just fought a war against a country that was not allowing them to carry firearms and housing troops in their city and sometimes in their homes. England maintained the right to, if they had troops garrisoned in a town that they did not have enough beds for or barracks for, they could just show up at your house and tell you, Hi, I'm staying here for a few days. I hope you've got a spare bed because I'm taking the good one. And that was one of the things that prompted the revolution in the first place. And that's why the Second Amendment is written the way it is, because the Founding Fathers had lived in a world where the British military could take a lot of liberties with the ordinary citizen. They had lived through that, and they knew where it led. And now we've got a bunch of people that don't understand history, don't understand where all these laws came from, that will scream at you on Facebook because they can't wait to give away that power back to the government. It's incredibly stupid, and I don't understand how anybody can feel that way, but such is the society we've created. But I'm getting pulled off topic. Let's get back on track. Another argument that Thomas Paine made for the revolution at this point in history is that he believed that in the infancy of a country is when its constitution needs to be established. Uh, Thomas Paine believed that the longer that we went under English rule, People would become accustomed to sort of the more oppressive aspects of the English system. Uh, Like I said, we just talked about the liberties that the military could take over the citizenry. Uh, But he also believed that people would just become used to that way of life, and they would not understand the freedoms that they're giving up, and they would not protect them in the Constitution. Thomas Paine also argued that the longer we wait, the longer we stayed as a colony of England, You know, I mentioned last time that one of the biggest exports from the colonies to England was timber. Thomas Paine argued that if we wait 50 years or 100 years, a lot of the raw materials that we would need to be able to mount a decent defense of the colonies would have been shipped over to England. Of course, you would not be able to deforest the entire continent in 50 years. But at this time, there was plenty of old-growth timber that was real close to the to the coast, to these ports where these ships would be built. Thomas Paine argued that you know, right now it would be relatively easy for us to build ships, to build fortifications, and if we wait 50 or 100 years, we're going to have to ship that all that timber and the lumber from a few hundred miles inland, and it's just going to make it that much harder for us to prepare to defend the colonies. He also said that this would tie into the amount of debt that we would need to incur. Now, he was pushing for us to go into debt in order to fund the revolution, uh, but I don't think that he was a big government spending guy. But he made some very good points. Uh, The the longer that we wait, the more expensive it's going to be to break away. Uh, He also felt that if we do this, if we go into debt as a nation in order to revolt against England, we have to be in it all the way, total freedom is what we should go for. He believed that if we go into debt as a nation and we spill the blood of our young men at battle, and the only thing that comes out of that is that Parliament repeals a couple of the acts that made the colonies unhappy in the first place, that that would be just a tragic waste. That would be you know, getting people killed and hurting the economy of this country for basically nothing. And to drive home his point about starting our Constitution now versus in a hundred years, he says this, Youth is the seed time of good habits, as well in nations as in individuals. It might be difficult, if not impossible, to form the continent into one government half a century hence. The vast variety of interest, occasioned by an increase of trade and population, would create confusion. Colony would be against colony each being able, might scorn each other's assistance. And while the proud and foolish gloried in their little distinctions, the wise would lament that the union had not been formed before. Wherefore, the present time is the true time for establishing it. The intimacy which is contracted in infancy and the friendship which is formed in misfortune are, of all others, the most lasting and unalterable. Our present union is marked with both these characteristics. We are young and we have been distressed but our concord hath withstood our troubles, and fixes a memorable area for posterity to glory in. The present time, likewise, is that particular time which never happens in a nation but once, the time of forming itself into a government. Most nations have let slip the opportunity, and by that means have been compelled to receive laws from their conquerors, instead of making laws for themselves. First, they had a king, and then a form of government, whereas the Articles or Charter of Government should be formed first. The men delegated to execute them afterwards, but from the errors of other nations, let us learn wisdom, and lay hold of the present opportunity to begin government at the right time. And that, ladies and gentlemen, more or less brings us to the end of Common Sense. Once again, I am just hitting the high points. There's a ton more information in here, and like I say, I didn't want to just read this verbatim. I would love for you guys to go out and purchase this. It's a very good read. I enjoyed it a lot. I feel a little bit more American having finished it. Again, most people, well, I'm sure a lot of people have never heard of this, uh, but it was. it's considered the most influential publication leading into the Revolution. A lot of historians have argued that Thomas Paine actually deserves the title Father of the Revolution just based on this work alone. I highly recommend that you pick up a copy. Like I say, I think I paid $7 for mine on Amazon. It's not an expensive pamphlet to pick up. You will not regret purchasing it. It gets my personal stamp of approval. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is about all I've got for you today. I hope you enjoyed the episodes on Common Sense. I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, I appreciate you sitting this long with me. If you did enjoy it, please leave me a like and a comment. Please give me a subscription. That would be greatly appreciated. You can leave me a comment at freshfrozen at gmail.com or at the Fresh Frozen Southerner Facebook page. All right, guys. Hope you had a good week. Hope your weekend is even better. And I will talk to you again very soon. Thank you very much.